Welcome to the One Last Sketch Podcast, a show dedicated to science fiction, fantasy, history, and weird Canadiana. Yeah. I'm your host, Michael Wojcik. I'm joined by my usual co-host... Where you got, Rack? And Corey. Name redacted. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Last time we said we were going to talk about Full Metal Alchemist, but then a lot of time passed... And Kate Beaton tweeted something, mm-hmm. and we suddenly decided we just have to make a rewatch of this Canadian show from 1999 called Cyber Six. It's exactly what you need in the middle of a pandemic crisis. Which is to say it's all available on YouTube, so you can binge watch it. listen to us in the past you know that we like animation we like strange canadiana we could not resist indeed this this was when you mentioned it to me you were like hey do you remember that thing that you had mentioned to me was free and i was like yeah yeah i do why because kate beaton tweeted about yep. it another great canadian artist because a bunch of great canadians involved in this i'll include us in this i guess <laughs> <laughs> that might be a tad over generous, but yeah, okay. Well, whatever. <laughs> Marie told me about this series a long time ago, and as far as I can tell, it was always available in some form since then. I just never actually got around to watching it until it suddenly came back into my headspace mm-hmm. with Kate Beaton talking about it because she hadn't heard about it before, and I definitely didn't watch this when I was a kid. Yeah, it wasn't available but for it you. It was on Teletoon. Yeah. You didn't have the cable. Um, whereas. I had CBC, and that was yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember watching it as a kid, and I, I didn't rewatch it for this, so I'm going to be coming at it purely from memory, but I yeah. do remember it being a good show. And I watched several. I didn't, never saw the whole thing as a kid. But I saw several episodes over and over again because it was this exciting adult-ish show that was on like late on Teletoon and I think maybe on YTV, but I'm not sure. It's all kind of blurry. Like I, I was, I don't know, nine, ten, eleven, maybe, probably eleven when I saw this. When I saw screen caps of this, uh, that's really what motivated me is that there were a bunch of screen caps attached to the tweet and. It looks nothing like anything that came out of Canada in 1999 from our animation industry. Yeah. There is a good reason for that, which we will get into later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it didn't look like complete shit, which is like most of the stuff. Okay, to be fair, yeah, because... to be fair, as we said in our previous Canadian movies podcast, when we talked about heavy metal, the animation's good, just in some parts. Just, uh, eh. The landscape of animation that was produced in Canada in the 1990s, uh, even going back into the 1980s, like we talked about rock and rule, and fans consider that kind of a high point of creativity in Canadian animation. That's tragic. And if you compare (laughs) rock and rule to Cyber 6, rock and rule looks like complete garbage. Yeah, Cyber 6 is Just to give you an idea... Of the levels of skill we're talking about. And that's not to really bag on Canadian animators too much. Our studios are small and underfunded at that time. 
And I don't think Western animation in terms of television for people 10 to 15 in the 80s and 90s was particularly great. Like, Filmation made He-Man, and that's definitely not good animation-wise. Yeah, there's lots of stuff where there's, like, a lot of still images, a lot of panning over, a lot of, like, cheating with just using the same frame, badly mashed up lip flaps, like, all that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, if you look back, a lot of things that people have nostalgia about are really best left to memory because they don't hold up because the quality is so poor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for Canadian TV... Uh, I guess the Magic School Bus was on at this time, which was on CBC for a bit. It was a Canadian show? It was on Canadian TV. I don't really know. No way was that a Canadian show. (laughs) I'm just talking about the background of cartoons that were running at this time. Mm -hmm. But most, we didn't have any kind of more adult-oriented, long-form narrative storytelling in any of our animated shows <laughs> or very few of our animated shows in the 90s Just, avatar the last ben last airbender was still a long way off at this point well we did have like Im- imports like dragon ball z which everyone did but that's also not a great example of animation either yeah, it has no. all those cheats the only kind the of like way. no that's <laughs> That's the exception, is that anime was starting to make its way over in the 80s, 90s. But if you were just a typical kid, you wouldn't... It was still at a point where you wouldn't really identify it as something that came from Japan. Mm -hmm. Because it was pretty heavily localized and there just wasn't that much of it. Mm -hmm. Like, there was a lot of masterpiece theater kind of stuff that did find its way to libraries and video stores here. But because it was based on Western literature, usually, and it was dubbed into English, mm-hmm. uh, all you could really tell was that, wow, the animation in this looks better than most of the other cartoons that are running on TV, and that was mm-hmm. about it. <laughs> yeah, no, the only thing, the only especially, like, particularly Canadian animation I can think of from, like, the 90s that stood out, aside from this, obviously, would be something like Reboot. Yeah, well, that's true. That, that, that I think into... I think we're talking about hand animation right now. Yeah, okay. so. Reboot is important when we're talking about this show from a storytelling perspective, because mm-hmm. I do think they share some things in common mm-hmm. and just a general approach that the storytelling that you that TV people were putting on was starting to get more mature for younger audiences, or I shouldn't say more mature, more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Reboot was an early example of that. Yeah, it's... Uh, and so is this. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's an example of television telling, or animation, I should say, telling, you know, good, coherent stories as opposed to color and lights to sell toys. Well, coherency we'll get to, <laughs> um, I think, with this. Just to put it in perspective, because there's that speech from um, Mr. Rogers when he's like, was that's, that's this is American, obviously. Um, when he's looking to get more funding for PBS, uh, he makes the comment that for like six minutes of like animation, you can like fund several episodes of something like Mister Robert Rogers' Neighborhood. So it should put in perspective of like how expensive animation is to do. It still is. I mean, yeah, you know, right. <laughs> so I think we can forgive poor Canada for not having like 
great animation. For everyone out there who's like, really, this can't have that bad bad animation landscape? Well, hey, you guys can go to the National Film Board website and you can watch that stuff because I think that's available online. <laughs> and you can glory in, I don't know, the cat came back, I guess, would be, or the log driver's waltz would be like bits of animation <laughs> that, you, that you could see. Early Canadian animation was pretty innovative, but it was never the kind of high-budget affairs that would give you a Disney movie. No. Well, I mean, Rock and Rule was our attempt at doing that, and we all saw how that turned out. That's kind of of par for the course in any kind of Canadian film, though. Like, unfortunately, our population and the size of the country, it just it kind of limits what can really be done. Do we know? Well, actually, we'll kind of get to this, too, because there might be more, like, French animation out there that we're not aware of. Um, yeah, that's coming after Cyber 6. Like, there are mm-hmm. shows that look like Cyber 6 after this came out, but I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure there was nothing before this mm-hmm. that looked anything like it that was produced in Canada. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, we talked a lot about the setup for this. I guess we can get on to Cyber 6. Yeah, now let's actually talk about the show. In terms of background and plot setup, I guess there really isn't that much. <laughs> no. I mean, there's not that much in terms of plot most of the time. So, so Cyber Six is a hero. She is um, a cyborg of some sort. We know that she's not human. She was created by Dr. Richter along with a uh, whole bunch of cybers. And she is the last one because they turned out to be disobedient Uh, They were all killed, except for her, and now she fights against Dr. Richter in the city of Meridiana, somewhere in South America, and that's the show. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, it is is very much a Monster of the Week vibe, for sure. Like, every episode is like, okay, what's the evil doctor's latest minion? You could literally watch them in any order. Like, I guess the first and the last one do have, like, beginning and ending points. Um, yeah, which should make them first and last episodes, but anything else in the middle, meh. it doesn't really matter. Yeah. I guess there's some characters that get introduced, but it doesn't really matter because if you met them the next episode, it would you would just be like, okay, these are some people that are known. So, yeah, yeah, and the main focus is on character relationships on any given episode, and that's mm-hmm. really the only through line you can follow through Cyber Six. Mm-hmm. Is that there's Cyber Six at the night? She's a crime-fighting hero. In the daytime, she is a uh, literature teacher disguised as Adrian Seidelman. Um, Who's a dude? Gender bending going over there. <laughs> yeah, and I remember she, when I, as a kid, this never like even registered as being odd to me. And actually, it worked. I was young enough that it actually worked on me, and that I didn't pick up. Because I, I was little enough when I saw this that I didn't pick up that Adrian and Cyber Six were the same person. Oh. <laughs> Just from the... Like, it took me a, a little bit in, into, like, I think, an episode. My brother that rather superior superiorly told me, like, which way <laughs> that they were the same person. And I was like, oh, they look so different. Well, I mean, so. I, I, I got that it was a disguise. And frankly, I, I kind of wondered why more superheroes didn't do that in their civilian persona. Or at least a civilian persona. Because... Mm-hmm. 
It worked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the ha- she must use a lot of hair gel as Adrian. Is all I can say just to, to make it stay up there. Well, it's, it's funny because it, it is a classic kind of Clark Kent thing in that when turning from Cyber Six to Adrian, she literally just does her hair differently. She puts on glasses yeah. and she wears baggy men's clothing. Yeah, and I mean, we'll talk about the vis- the like uh, graphic novel later, but. In in the animation, she's really small chested, so it sort of works quite easily. <laughs> um, not so much in the uh, in the com- in the comics. I'm not sure how well it works there. So yeah. So the heart of the show is the relationship between Cyber Six and Lucas. Lucas is another teacher in the high school where she teaches as Adrian. I guess he's biology, chemistry, or just. Science in general, I guess. Yeah, he switches around. Well, I mean, high school science yeah, doesn't require that degree of special specialization. Like, their, their classes seem so, to be, like, grade 10, so... In the first episode, they meet uh, first as Lucas and Adrian, and later as Lucas and Cyber Six. Lucas, I guess he was a former boxer, and that's hinted at in, like, a three-second clip. Mm-hmm. Tight and... storytelling in this series, because things are communicated in very short spans of time. <laughs> the relationship between them is actually pretty interesting, because mm-hmm. typically Lucas would serve the position of the female love interest in a kind of superhero show, not just mm-hmm. animation or just anything that was coming out in the 90s. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really... He tries to help. He's not really good at it. But Cyber Six just kind of lets him tag along. Yeah, it's, it's she. She has like, I mean, there is spoiler alert, I guess, a moment where they kiss, but most of the time she says, "You're my best friend, Lucas," or she like ruminates about whether or not she can have like a platonic relationship with this human man. <laughs> like that's most of her conflict. What? It's not. It's sort of romantic, but not really. And I think that might have to do with the age that this show is targeted at. I think, and again, you guys have watched more recently than I have, but isn't that kind of one of the central conflicts she's always dealing with? Is not just can she have a platonic relationship, it's can she have any kind of relationship with normal humans? You know, can she have friends? Can she have romantic interests? Can she have, you know, a family even? Mm -hmm. Or is she forever kind of meant to be an outcast figure? I don't think the family part comes up at all. Because that would, yeah. Well, again, it's been like 20 years since I've watched yeah. it. No, it's more, but it, it, it is, because, like, if you didn't know, because if you don't watch the first episode and you start on the second one, like, you'd have enough information to watch each episode by itself. But you wouldn't know, like, some of the key things about Cyber 6 in the other episodes, like that she is a cyber, specifically, or what that means. So it would just be kind of like, I guess she's an outsider, would be what you think of the subsequent episodes, because... Something's happened in the first episode that you just never see again ever in the series. So it's never like brought up or reinforced other than her narrative. Yeah, because in the first episode, it's set up that Cyber Six needs to get these vials of green liquid called sustenance in order to survive. And how she gets them is that she goes after the new version of demi-humans that Dr. Richter has created. And when she kills them, they evaporate and leave behind the vial of green liquid. Uh, a convenient Which is a key. very video game logic. Yeah. It isn't <laughs> how the comics does that at all. 
<laughs> naughty, no. not at all. <laughs> but um, what I love is that those monsters are called fixed ideas. And I, the only reason I love that is because since this, we'll get into like the history of the translation story behind this thing, but it clearly comes from the French for like idée fixe, fixe, like fixed idea, which is also the name for dogmatics in in um, asterisks and obliques in en français. So to me, that's just a funny kind of coincidence. Well, and um, the thing with these other demi-humans that she, she's got to get sustenance from, if I'm remembering correctly, they're not mindless but they're far from intelligent like they are they're stupid obedient they're very strong and very dangerous but they're not really capable of developing any kind of like self-purpose or self-will other than doing what they're told yeah they're just kind of goons they're the follow-up to the cybers because the mm-hmm. cybers were failures because they were too disobedient so the fixed ideas are the obedient version of the same thing, which is why she can survive on the same green goo. Yeah, the cybers are, in a sense, actually people, where the fixed ideas really aren't. Yeah, yeah. And there's a sort of, like, they're just generic. They have different shirts, but that's about it. And the same characters are used each time. Like, it's the same, like, black and tan shirt one. So even though he's destroyed, like, he comes back in that kind of, like... I think the different shirts are just used so you can tell who she hit last in a fight. Yeah, that's exactly it, because they look exactly the same. Speaking of characters who aren't humans, there's a pretty significant one that appears early on in the show, which is the other last surviving cyber, except he's not a cyber anymore because his brain got transplanted into the body of a panther. Because, of course... (laughs) A rule of cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, this is Data, Data 7. Seven. He yeah. has his own apartment, which I found delightful. <laughs> yeah, he does. He's, it's like a locker in the subway station, but it was, it was it's just like an, a disused place. I love that he just sleeps on the bed in there. The Cybers were actually created as children and grew to maturity. And Data yes. 7 was another Cyber. He was, I think he was like 23 or something was his number. 24, yeah. That's still impressive that I can remember it that closely. Yeah. Um, and when the Cybers were exterminated, no, he fell. He was in an accident when they were still infants. Well, they weren't infants. They were or, just young. Sorry, yeah. when they were still young children. And um, I guess what happens is the mad scientist then takes his brain and puts him into this new panther body because it's cool. <laughs> I think it's like he had a panther, he had a broken cyber, he's like, ah. Whatever, it's Tuesday, let's just do this. Whatever. He was just doing an experiment, and it worked. And up to that point, Data 7 was Dr. Von Richter's, like, main assassin. Until... Potentially. We don't really know what he used Data 7 for. We don't from the TV show. I mean, there might be... Yeah. Oh, yeah, we we mainly mean from the TV show. That's how Data 7 is introduced as someone that Dr. Richter relies on and calls upon. It's just that right away we get the episode where he turns and becomes one of the good guys. Yeah, because that's the episode he's introduced. <laughs> exactly. Uh, there are a few other characters that team up with Cyber Six later on. Nah, who cares? <laughs> yeah, there's like an urchin. There's a, yeah. also like a teenage girl. It's kind of annoying. Isn't, is the teenage girl the one who is one of Adrian's students yeah. and is crushing on her? Because she thinks yeah, Adrian... Yeah, she thinks Adrian's a dude. And, 
Which I guess I guess Adrian really pulled that off, or Cybertron yeah. pulled off that transition. There's the <laughs> very racist caricature of the Japanese detective. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's very, really bad. <laughs> I was watching. That, I was like, oh god. Yeah, no. Not, <laughs> just, just to be clear, while it is a good show, not every aspect of it ages well at all. What's interesting about that episode is that the character design is super racist, but he's just voiced to not have any accent or anything. Like, yeah. If you had just taken the visuals out, it would have been fine. I know. If they just weren't so buck-teethed and squinty-eyed, it'd be like, that would be fine. And it's a friggin'... The animation team is... Uh, I mean... Yes, we'll yeah, get to no, that. Yeah. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. I'm trying not to spoil the, the progress of this episode. So really... Good. What I want to get to with the characters is that Besides Cyber 6, Lucas, Data 7, the really uh, the other relationship that takes up most of the show is between Dr. Von Richter and uh, their relationship's never quite clear. I think Jose, the other very young villain character, calls mm-hmm. him father, uh, mm-hmm. looks like a 10-year-old boy, but at various points in the show there are hints he is not nearly as young as he looks. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't... This might be something from the comic that I read, but isn't it implied that he's, like, a clone? Yes, in, yeah, the, that's not in the... In the comic, it's very clear okay. who Jose is. In yeah, the show, not in the show. No. <laughs> in the show, it's like, why are you setting this really annoying ten-year-old to fuck everything up constantly? Is <laughs> kind of more... <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, Jose. From what I remember, Jose is an interesting character because he he borders on being comic relief. Oh, but, he is comic well, relief, but he is still a legitimate threat as well. <sighs> mm, I would say he's super. I found him irritating and super annoying through most of the episodes until he becomes an interesting character in the last one. And yeah. we'll get to the story structure of this later and how kind of strange yeah. it is, but the casualty mm-hmm. of this is that you'll have characters who become interesting for an episode, but are otherwise not really fleshed out or explored in any appreciable degree. Anyway, we've gone through the major characters. The real standout part of this show is the character design. Everyone has hair on their face. So many emo swoops so all the time. <laughs> it looks very unique. Like I said, it look, doesn't look like anything produced in Canada at this time. Doesn't really look like anime either. Cyber 6's costume in particular is fantastic. Yep. Nothing like a... Actually, she looks a lot like Trinity, now that I think about it. She's got that like liquid latex black cat suit. A, a cloak that grows and shrinks as dramatically needed with a, red, with a red lining and, like, big, like, um, vampire pointy bits on the cloak. Which, as all good cloaks should. I and, mean. and like, a Carmen Sandiego hat, but in black. <laughs> so it's just... It's totally a Carmen Sandiego hat. It is totally hat. a Carmen Sandiego hat. And then always in giant stilettos at all times when she's cyber six. So she becomes super sexy. <laughs> Basically, which is such the weirdest thing about this show is her character design is so slick and sexy, but the target audience for the show has got to be way younger than what that character design would normally be for. Yep. And as we've been hinting out, 
through this entire episode, there's a reason for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I've just found a lot of the characters are designed so they have a lot of personality just in the way they look, which ends up mm-hmm. going a long way to cover up for the storytelling shortcomings of this show because everyone just looks interesting. Well, except for mm-hmm. the Japanese guy. Yeah. Yeah, but he's only there for one episode. So. And his sister, also wearing traditional Japanese guy. Why? <laughs> but yeah, everyone's super grunge. Uh, is kind of funny. And and the super kind of bl- blocky way that it's drawn in the comics is preserved but also transmuted through the sort of anime style animation. So it becomes a it keeps that kind of rectangular sort of nature that it had in the comics but then it becomes super smooth and fluid in its motion. Yeah. In the uh, TV show and that's where we come to the animation, which is the best part of the show. Yeah. The, it's the only reason to watch this show. The design, like, really. <laughs> background design, character design, all great. The animation is very fluid and just very well storyboarded and directed. Like the fight scenes in this mm-hmm. look great. They're so well blocked mm-hmm. out. You can always tell what's going on. Cyber Six fights in an interesting kind of balletic style a lot of like judo or aikido kind of throws because there's not she does like kick people she i don't think i recall her punching people a whole lot but she's very sort of non-violent in how she copes with things and a lot of animation at this time if it was an action kind of show it just ended up feeling kind of floaty uh if you can Mm -hmm. understand like Nothing seemed to have weight behind it at about this period, and that's where Cyber Six really excels, that everything feels mm-hmm. like when there's a punch, mm-hmm. there's an impact, people are rebounding off of walls. She gets thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things are getting Like, she smashed. actually gets beat up more. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not... They aren't realistic fights in that they are still stylized, you know, cartoon action hero. Mm-hmm. Um but there's more consequence to each segment of the fight. Like, if she gets hit, Cyber Six goes flying. She doesn't just shrug it off and, you know, we just continue on with the lazy lazy 80s animation. Yeah. And it always transitions into something else so that you're always following the action. There's no point where the characters just stop and start talking at each other in the middle of a fight scene. If they're Mm -hmm. doing that, it's because they're also doing something interesting at the same time. Yeah, yeah the, there's no loose jaws flapping dialogue while dead eyes stare from the screen. It's it's all. Well, and what I like about it is because since she's so petite in her in her drawing style, like you know she's strong because she's got like this, she got like Jessica Jones super jump ability at the very minimum, right? Um, but uh, and you know she must have some kind of super strength because she throws big things a lot. But she doesn't. Um, she doesn't, she's not like Luke Cage where you can hit her and hit her and hit her. Like, she flies through the air. Like, she's very, like, light. Um, and, yeah. and, it, and it sort of works because she's sort of like that floaty feather thing in comparison to the fixed ideas, which are usually big, grounded tanks that mm-hmm. don't move very fast, relatively well, speaking. Again, her powers are never specifically defined. Nope. They're shown. <laughs> and like you said, from as far as we can, as far as I can tell, it's super strength. Um, somewhat improved speed and agility. I mean, she definitely has improved dur- improved durability and endurance, but she's not invulnerable. She does get hurt. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, I wouldn't say so much that she's that great at dodging, 
Like, she gets thrown around. I was going to say, she gets thrown, beat up way more than you see her beating up anyone else. Which is, I think, sort of goes to, to like, a, a narrative style of trying to show that she's a good person and doesn't beat up other people. Because she has this almost nearly entirely non-violent way where it's all, kind of, like, it's very Akita-like. It's all kind of, like, direction and throws <laughs> into something else. Where she doesn't really, like, ever... Like, do, like, a killing blow or anything like that. Nothing that's shown. Yeah. Um, there are a couple times she snuffs out some of the uh, fixed ideas, but you don't see her, like, actually deliver that killing strike. It's always mm -hmm. kind of in shadow or off-camera type thing. Well, she might, like, throw them into something and that does it. Yeah. But, like, that kind of thing. Or they get electrocuted. But I, I wonder something. if that... That's the kind of thing where it has a characterization effect, but I wonder if that was unintentional simply because they were still trying to market the show to a young audience. I think when we talk about animation, though, everything is intentional to a certain degree. Yeah, because there's no blood in this show, mm -hmm. which is really important. Like, Sorry, th th that's kind of my point, though. Yeah. It's, yes, they're intentionally choosing how to, to present the fight scenes. I'm not saying otherwise. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying if they made that particular decision in how to do it because it was being marketed to kids... It has a side effect. And it yeah. just... And yeah, and it has a side effect in how we interpret the character. Yeah, I think so. Because even in like Samurai Jack, he never kills like uh, technically he never kills like a living creature. He kills like only robots or oil things. Right? Yeah, I mean, but you never get that kind of like spurt of oil. At, Haha, it's not blood. She just never hurts somebody that way. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. So earlier we touched on backgrounds a bit, and this is where I want to talk about the other main point of interest of the show, which is its setting, and how this imaginary city of Mer Meridiana is just very well presented throughout Cyber 6. Mm -hmm. like it, everything is built up in relation to other buildings, other landmarks, there's a real sense of geography. You you feel like the you could navigate around this city, kind of. You have a general idea of what the layout mm -hmm. is, where stuff is. You see a lot of different parts of the city, like where the rich people are. Here's the docks. Here's the poor people. Here's the drawbridge. Mm -hmm. And and there's and I think it works really well because and I've heard this in other like reviews of Cyber Six is because there's that big central angel statue. And it's always, like, the center point of the city. And it's this massive, huge thing that towers over all the buildings. And it's always in the background. So you sort of always see reference to the central point where Cyber 6 or where the action is. I was just saying it's just a really good design choice for orienting people to put a big, obvious statue that you can dramatically backlight everything in relation to. <laughs> the other part of this is that the city is a South American city. So it has... Uh, interesting architecture that you wouldn't really see in other Western animated mm -hmm. superhero shows at this time. No. I remember always thinking as a kid that it was Paris for some reason. It has, and I, I think I even said that to, to you, Michael, when I was like initially re-watching it. I was like, is it, is it Paris? Because it has that feel. And then you're like, no, it's definitely Buenos Aires. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> They're like, in Argentina. <laughs> I, I think part of that might be... Um, the pop culture we're exposed to, in English-speaking Canada at least, tends to be very Euro-American-centric. Mm -hmm. So we, we see the style of architecture, we're kind of almost coded to think mm -hmm. Paris or mainland France as opposed to, mm -hmm. you know, South America. Yeah. But it's cool that that con continental architecture got transported to South America 
and then was clearly enough depicted in this random Canadian animated show that you actually are you get that essence of South America. Like the the design was so strong. And just the attention to detail on the architecture and the backgrounds is really impressive. Mm. Like between the yeah. fight choreography, blocking and animation and this, those are the two best parts. It's just like wandering around the streets, <laughs> seeing just people are going about their daily lives back there. The buildings all are all interesting. Because <laughs> they're all that sandy, warm glow, and everything during day that's lit in daytime has this great color palette of being like warm to reflect that it's pretty like hot in that area, right? Yeah, the color, the, and, the color and, design and storytelling in this is also very good. I mean, we're talking about Meridiana. Mm-hmm. There are some points where they get out of the city and those backgrounds are also really well done and have a good sense of place mm-hmm. to them. Like the animation team mm-hmm. working on this did a really good job, <laughs> but Wonderful. we're about to get to the yeah. other part of the team that worked on this. <laughs> Cause we're about to talk about the storytelling, <laughs> which I think we can <laughs> charitably, charitably I'll call the storytelling a bleak. Yeah. Well, just as Cyber 6 never is shown doing anything, like, in just in the combat, in that really narrow storytelling sense, it's also very frustrating, because you never see her accomplish anything. If you're actually re-watching it, I was like, I mainly just see her get beat up, and then something else, or it just gets resolved in some way. Like, it's very nebulous about how anything happens, or how she accomplishes anything. She doesn't even do anything, just shows up, and then it ends. <laughs> So, you know, she shows up, it's it's beautiful, it's fabulous, and then it's over. <laughs> Which I never noticed as a kid, obviously, so I mean, it worked. Like, when you're 11 or 10, the show's great, <laughs> so... I will say sometimes the oblique storytelling works, where there's just, like, a hint of the background. Like, Dr. Von Richter is never explicitly revealed to be a Nazi in the show, but there are so many hints... Yeah. It's like, well, Doesn't yeah. he wear the pants, like the big puffy... Yeah, okay. the, the yacht purse? Yeah. It's really clear. I mean, also his name's like Von Richter, mm. mad scientist in Argentina. <laughs> like, what do you think he is? But, yeah, so. the backstory that we talked about earlier going through the plot of this show, it's like, you get little bits and pieces, but you never get a full explanation of just about anything. I think there's there's mm-hmm. an argument to be made that sometimes it's good to have mysteries, but uh, Cyber 6, I think, leaves. <laughs> there's just too many yeah. instances where the explanation for something is maybe a two-second clip of animation of something in the background. Like, I mean, in Mad Max Fury Road, there's lots of things where it's like, you just gotta accept this world is and figure it out, but... but- like, I think when you're a kid... You don't notice this. I definitely didn't notice that. Sort of lacking in narrative depth. But as an adult watching, I was like, man, the source material seems really cool. <laughs> That's what yeah. I mainly felt the whole way through. Again, as the member of the group who didn't rewatch it uh, in preparation for this, like I, I have memories of the stories more or less making sense. But again, it, it was... It was Monster of the Week. Okay, what villain is she up against? Which of the mad scientists' crazy new inventions is she up against this week? Yeah. And, and I mean, I would say that it is kind of a good example of very tight storytelling, because you don't... These are very minimal amount of information to tell you what's going on. 
and not much usually happens. Like, I, th- I feel like the story is in some ways so pared down so that the younger audience can follow it. Because there's so many obvious things towards the one story element, and there's only usually... Sometimes there's more than one plot, but usually there isn't. Yeah, so in terms of story structure, if you want to get all the information of some kind of ongoing narrative, you can watch episodes 1, 2, and 13, and you will have everything. (laughs) That is the entire story of Cyber 6, is those three episodes. And everything else that happens is incidental... Mm -hmm. And while the relationship between Cyber Six and Lucas might be affected slightly in some way, everything's back to status quo by mm-hmm. the end of the episode. Like, there are episodes where mm-hmm. she just straight up lets Jose escape. <laughs> Doesn't even try mm-hmm. to catch him. Well, and it's never spelled out until episode 13 how dependent she is on the Sussex. Because you sort of forget about it after episode one. Because they show you the sustenance thing in episode one, and then it never comes up. So as far as you're aware, it's like, well, I guess she's just eating food. <laughs> so, but it's not until the episode, the very final one, when Von Richter is like, you need me to be around, or else you'll die, because you need the sustenance, that you're like, oh yeah, she's sort of stuck, that she can't get rid of them. And that's such an interesting thing, but it doesn't come up anywhere else. <laughs> And then the series ends, so there you go. Well, I think kind of what we're all touching on here is that it is a show, if you literally just take the show as it is, those 13 episodes, there's a lot there that could have been done, that wasn't explored, that wasn't developed, that certainly had the potential to be far more interesting than it was. And again, I, I say this as someone who remembered enjoying the show. And again, maybe it is in the comic, I haven't read it, but taking the show as a show there's so many little things where just all these tiny little shortcomings where it's like yeah. if they just done a little bit more. It makes it so Canadian that way. And I mean, there's a good reason why you've never read this comic, but we're going to get to that later. Yeah. yeah. And that being all said, like, I just can't stop comparing it to what was coming out at the time because the only really comparable mm-hmm. show was Batman the Animated Series to this. And in some way mm-hmm. they have kind of a pair or comparable structures to them it's just there's not nearly as much episodes there's no two-parters to this mm-hmm. yeah i think um i think batman's a good parallel and um one thing i remember about cyber six i'm looking back it never really struck me as that dark like there's there certainly some darker elements to it but there, there was never anything that made me go oh wow this is dark um, where Batman, even at like six and seven year old years old, I remember some episodes of that, like mm-hmm. being able to recognize that they were dark. There was stuff happening that was like you knew you knew most of it was going over your head, but you still knew enough to see how intense it was. And Cyber Six kind of it feels like it should have that, but it doesn't. I mean, it has it in the intro because the intro to Cyber Six captures, I think, the mood. Of probably the comic a little bit. Because the song is pretty haunting and, like, despairing in a way. Like, it's got, like, a... And then and the animation there. And it's very compelling, the intro. But it almost is, like, more so than the rest of the show actually is. Like, that intro sells you on an experience that you don't actually get from Which is a common show. thing with a lot of anime. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say, just as a parallel, uh, Berserk. Yeah. Which is... Re- 
ridiculously dark, horrifically graphic and violent. It has this, like, really cheesy, like, bizarre opening song. That's just an anime thing. They do that all the time. Yeah. Well, we've been talking about the shortcomings of this episodic structure for so long, but I do want to briefly ask what your favorite episodes were. <laughs> I think my favorite one is probably where Data 7 shows up. I think it just, I, and I think it's just because it, it always has that, that memory shows up. I can't remember how many times, maybe five times you see that memory. And it's just such a, and because Data 7 is nonverbal and does everything in gesture, he's kind of like a cool person to, like, he has a cool way of expressing. Um, and I, I think that's, the, and I think it's because Data 7 and Cyber 6 can have, like, more like, more of a relationship, even though one is a large cat now. <laughs> um, that, uh, because they had the same background and stuff. Well, I mean, they're siblings too, right? Yeah. It's for her, it's she has family. Like, that's yeah. for what this type of character is supposed to be, just the revelation mm-hmm. that, hey, you still have family, you're not completely alone mm-hmm. is kind of world-shaking. Yeah. As for his favorite episodes, I don't really remember too many of them that well. I remember there's an episode with the Gargoyles, which again, mon- mm-hmm. very Monster of the Week. Mm-hmm. I remember there's another one, though, where there's another one of the Doctor's creations. It's You don't get the backstory of where she comes from. It's another female figure, humanoid shape, but she doesn't have hair. She's got, like, blue skin, and she's got, like, tentacles growing out of her Oh, head. yeah, that's, like, the, the yeah. second last one. The visible one. Yeah, and it basically gets to the point where Cyber Six tries to actually save this character's life. And then the character kind of realizes that, oh, there, there's, for lack of a better term, she sees the humanity there and she realizes that there's more to it than just being this killer monster she was built to be. And she ends up sacrificing, well, Cyber Six was trying to save her life in a way that puts her own life at risk. And then this character sacrifices herself to save Cyber Six. Favorite episode. What's your favorite episode? I concur with you on the Data 7 episode, which I believe is also the episode with the gloopy monster. Uh, I think so, because it it ends in a burning tower, from what I remember. Uh, I think those are separate episodes. Well, then I'll put that one there, because it also heavily features Data 7, and Cyber Mm 6's kind of weird relationship with that monster which is not replicated anywhere else in the show i actually found pretty compelling Mm -hmm. especially for a show aimed at the age range of Mm -hmm. the audience that it was actually you're gonna have to refresh my memory what was the relationship with the monster the mud monster there's something where like when it tried to absorb her i don't know if it's that she has like a soul or agency and it just couldn't like it affected it somehow um I, it kind of is what happens actually with the the lady that can turn invisible, where it's sort of I think there's like the other the other creations of Von Richter, and it happens in the last episode too. Recognize something in Cyber Six that um, is different from just being made. I think is what it is. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the monster like doesn't gets into this big conflict over killing Cyber Six, which is like what it's for, but it doesn't want to do is ultimately. None of us mentioned the yeah. final episode as our favorite episode, but I do, th- I do it's think it's episode, a very though. satisfying conclusion to the show because, well, it picks up on all the threads that were dropped from the first two episodes. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh yeah, sustenance is a thing. See, 
I remember looking back, I'm sure, yes, I would agree it's a satisfying ending. I remember being very frustrated with it as a kid because it's a cliffhanger that promises a second season that never came. Mm. And I remember enjoying the show. Like, I, I enjoyed the show quite a lot. Like, despite the numerous shortcomings that I can think back on, I, I do remember I enjoyed it and I wanted to watch more of it. And then when there's this cliffhanger and nothing comes from that, it, it was. I think as. Yeah, I think irritating. as a kid you would interpret it as a cliffhanger. I think now it seems pretty definitive as an ending when you see it. Yeah, she did. <laughs> like, even it's hinted that she survived at the yeah. end. But even if she survived, everything in the episode has indicated sustenance is not something she can get anymore. Yeah, like, she would be gone. Like she, So it's kind of like, it's over, actually. They probably ended that, like, little sort of hopeful bit because, you know, we can't make kids cry too much kind of thing. Well, because I remember the cliffhanger is, you see her window to her apartment, the light's on, mm-hmm. and then I think the last shot of the series is a shot of Jose taking over because his father's now dead, so he can be the big bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, that's, for me, more than anything, that was the cliffhanger. It's that, wait a minute, there's still a villain, this isn't resolved. This is the one episode Mm -hmm. that really fleshes out the villains in a... It's kind of a twisty way Mm -hmm. that redefines their entire relationship up to this point. And this is the one thing that the show, I think, was Mm -hmm. really good at when when the writers are up to it, which is only in a couple of episodes... But that it can just yeah. drop a few interactions and suddenly everything that you saw these characters do before is in a completely different light. Uh, so mm-hmm. I let, the last episode hints at much deeper storytelling. It actually has emotional payoff. The rest of the show doesn't really do that, but I do like it as a final story. <laughs> but it's important to note yeah. that this mm-hmm. last episode is not better because it's a direct adaptation of anything because that's not where the comics ended. <laughs> sure isn't. That's where the funding ended. <laughs> if you know where the comics ended, don't tell me because I still hold out hope that I might yep, be able keep to read them one day. Keep holding that hope, Corey. <laughs> yeah, keep holding that out. <laughs> so, you know what's more interesting than the story in this TV show? The production history because that must have been fascinating <laughs> yeah because this is nuts like it's sort of like how if you watch um oh what was it we just watched it recently it was the um the vietnam war one. Oh, apocalypse yeah now. like how apocalypse now's production story has its own documentary too <laughs> so you can do that with this because it's so bizarre everything about this is weird so This show is based on an Argentine comic book uh, that was very adult, ran in an adult comics magazine. Very. Very bloody, uh, lots of in-panel nudity. Like, most of the covers were Cyber 6 naked and kind of in bondage most of the the time. So the comic started in 1993, the artist was Carlos Meglia, and the author was Carlos Trillo. How this ever came to the attention of a Canadian production company is a mystery, because this comic was never officially translated into English. Oh, do you not know this? Um, there's a thing, well, from what I found in my, you know, YouTube research, because <laughs> um, it was, 
they're, they're Argentinian art- artists. The comic yeah. was published in Italy. In Scorpio Like in an magazine. Italian magazine, right? That's right. And then it was the comics were translated into French hmm. as well. And it's suspected that it's a French Canadian yeah. that therefore was able to access and read this them. This is the only then... connection that we know is that it was translated to French and it was available in Quebec and there was a French Canadian on the board of, uh, I guess the company is called Network of Animation. He's one of the producers. in Vancouver. Yeah. I think he like produced it though. I think he liked it so much that he found a way to make the yeah, animated thing out of it. don't know. Yeah, so... I don't know that dude's there name. Are... Yeah. No, we're to, just guessing. To, to recap, it's an Argentinian comic published in an Italian magazine adapted to a Canadian yeah. television series. Yes, by, by a, a Japanese <laughs> animation studio. <laughs> Which is why it's got beautiful fucking animation. Because <laughs> Canadians uh, guess did not make what? that. <laughs> the comic Cyber 6 was never translated into Japanese. <laughs> So, nope. TMS Entertainment nope. is the company in Japan that made this show on on all the parts that count in mm-hmm. terms of the animation. They also did some episodes mm-hmm. of Batman the Animated Series, I think you can tell. Uh, the scripts were done on the Canadian side, and I believe the voice acting as well. Yeah. <laughs> so the sound of the show, the mixing is terrible. Where the background's very loud, sometimes nearly drowning out the like sound sound effects of like actions happening and of speech. So, so like the music is good and the voice acting is fine. Actually, it's pretty decent. I'd say, especially for the time period, I think it's pretty good. But it's um, mixed terribly. Yes, yeah. I agree on that. Yeah, the quality of recording is fine. Like it doesn't sound like they're in a weird echoey room, even though they're not. <laughs> like that mm. kind of thing doesn't happen at least. Just the mixing is really bad. But I think you said that's like a 90s joke Yeah, it was. In general. And as I said, the, the scripts were generally done from the Canadian side. And while the comic was never officially translated into nice. English, you can find fan translations of at least part of it online. But it's one of those cases where you have to dig mm-hmm. quite deep to be able to find them. Yeah. So it's the, really hard. Although the fact that it is translated into French gives me hope, because I can read French well enough. I'm like, I can get those. So <laughs> based on fan translation, <laughs> the beginning of the first episode basically mirrors the beginning of the comic. So they somehow got the gist of the story and a lot of the details right. But there's no official translations... In English, there is in French, and from my poking around, the French editions are the best ones. Uh, Apparently the Spanish editions are printed in, like, phone book Mm -hmm. quality paper, (laughs) and the Italian editions (laughs) Mm -hmm. are similarly of just lower print quality, so a lot of the older printings of this besides the French ones are falling apart. Can we talk about the age it's it's geared to? Yeah, like, because the comics are not for kids. Because the comics are R-rated, like re- triple X potentially. Well, like so, they're really not good. So my understanding, <laughs> yeah, my, my understanding of the history, like equivalent, it would be like taking Todd McFarlane's Spawn and trying to make a kids show of that. Yeah, right. Like the flip side, I can think of actually one example of that working successfully, and that's Ninja Turtles. 
The original Ninja Turtles comics are horrifically violent and gory, and yet somehow it's like one of the big childhood franchises, so maybe they were trying to do the same thing here? Oh, just one thing, one big difference, that because we, we sort of talked about it very briefly, but in the, like, just to show kind of like a little bit more of like how it was altered when it became the TV show, like she drinks the, that cylinder of, she does this once in the show, right? She drinks the cylinder of green goo sustenance stuff. But in the comics, she's a vampire. Like, that's how she gets sustenance in the comics. So that's a... Clearly, you can see that they, they were... Somebody at some point in the design phase had to be like, how, we can't have her bite people if she's like... For, if, we're, if our age group is 6 to 12, that is not okay. How do we, like, get around this? And they're like, well, I guess we'll be puff of smoke and, like, cylinder. That'll work, you know? So, yeah. I can't, I can't just imagine the, the, like, design. I wish we had, like, old des- design stuff about Cyber 6 so that we could see, like, the character design getting worked out. There is so much, looks so much background material I would love As to I've see mentioned. on the show that is probably sitting in a back lot somewhere or ended up in an incinerator. <laughs> That's the case yeah. with a lot of yeah. just weird Canadian things. But it's just, like, wh- why would you... Because, I mean, it's easy also to be like, why would you target, like, people probably, like, 6 to 12 is the age group that we're looking at here, yeah. I would say. And I'm wondering if it's, like, the guy trying to get this produced had to find a way to convince somebody to fund this, because he couldn't have produced it all by himself. I, I don't think so. It's not, like, it doesn't speak of, like, a passion project where somebody did just that, but maybe he could get the funding to make a kid's show, so then they had to adapt it down to this level. That's what I think is the kind of thing that happened. That makes sense to me, because animation targeted towards an adult audience, it exists, and it existed at the time, but, I mean, even now, it's still hard to find. Um, like, I can think of a couple big examples from this time. Like, okay, I mentioned Spawn. There was an animated version of that, which is very adult. But normally adult animation takes more of a humorous bent. Um, yeah, like The Simpsons. This, well, The Simpsons mm-hmm. more, I'm sticking South Park. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess Beavis and Butthead, which I ever watched. Um, but like, yeah, yeah like act, action narrative oriented animation targeted towards an adult audience is very rare. And it was then, it is now. So I, I agree with Marie. I think it was probably a case of somebody liked it enough, they wanted it made any way possible, and a kid's show was the only way to do it. And it's sort of weirdly, in terms of the character design, I think actually I way prefer Cyber Six's character design in the TV show versus her design in the comics. Um, because I, it's just, I think it's just a nicer aesthetic in the TV show, and it's probably because it got funneled through that yeah. um, anime kind of vibe. But... It's so that's kind of funny that I think that's better, like being like a double A versus like double F in terms of like bus size. I, this show is so weird. So it's when so strange. Corey's talking about animation, we're mainly talking about Western animation at the time for that, or even now. The 90s in mm-hmm. Japan yeah. had a lot of these one shot video releases that were. Super violent, etc., etc. <laughs> Straight from Japan, not kid mm-hmm. stuff. Well, I, I remember that was when anime was starting to come over. I remember that was always kind of one of the big selling points. Is that it's like, oh, wait a minute, these are not typical cartoons. These are actually, you know, meant for adults. They're just animated. 
It wasn't, didn't that happen to, like, Nausicaa came over around this time, right? Isn't that what happened, like, in that weird initial thing? And I know at some later point we'll do Nausicaa. Actually, speaking of being in quarantine, that could be something I could do. <laughs> but anyway. Right there, go read it. Yeah. Um, Big one I remember hearing was Studio Ghibli. Which um, is this time. Princess Mononoke. Mm. Yeah, which is like the first big anime film I remember being hearing about being released here. When did Akira? Come? Yeah, wasn't Akira before that? Akira was, but Akira never had like a theatrical release the way mm. Mononoke did. Well, because at the time Cyber Six comes out or came out, that's kind of when anime was just starting to take off in North America. Prior to that, it was always kind of like this niche market, kind of small mm. hobby thing that only like the quote unquote neckbeard nerds. Yeah. would care about. I mean, obviously that wasn't true then, and it's not true now, but that was the perception it had, and it's around when Cyber 6 comes out that that perception was starting to shift. In a way, like, I'm so glad that Cyber 6 exists as it does, because it was something that you could watch as a small kid, even though it's got really, the narrative structure is really bad in, in a lot of ways. You could watch it as a kid. It had this beautiful kind of style to it, and you sort of got... And it's the fact that it's Canadian, like, I never knew that about it for a long time. But yeah. I'm kind of grateful that it gave you this ability to see this kind of thing as a kid in Canada. Like, rarely in as a kid in Canada do you get something that you don't get in the States. Because I, I watched, like, these episodes, it was like the late night special thing. Because it seemed so adult and exciting that I could that I could watch, which was great. This did come out in the States, but was cancelled after two episodes. <laughs> the comic looks pretty compelling. I want to say, I do say, I do want to read it, because it, it's kind of cool. It's probably going to, if and when I do, it's probably going to be kind of like, ah, these tropes are old now. So, I mean, we older, did not but... solve the mystery of how <laughs> yeah. this came to the attention of a Canadian company. Like you said, I very much appreciate that this exists. <laughs> It represents a kind yeah. of approach to animation that was just on the cusp of more adult-oriented, long-form storytelling making its way to North American TV. Really nothing looks like it, and definitely nothing has the fascinating, potentially fascinating mm -hmm. backstory <laughs> in production that Cyber 6 does. This feels like a show people saw when they were a kid, mm -hmm. and then they wonder if they just imagined it. <laughs> yeah, and it's like all the, to circle back to Kate Bitten, Beaton's Twitter, all the comments, but she's like, when she was like, what is this? And everyone's like, I remember watching that show, that show's great. And this whole group of people who did see it, but lots of people in Canada didn't see it. Because it wouldn't, like, appeal to that many mainstream audiences because yeah. it's sort of this kind of to the side yeah. thing at the time. It's so, it's like, it's like the Berenstain Bears thing. Like, did the, are we in so, a reality or not? <laughs> Was there a shift and only some of us saw Cyber 6? It's a show based off of a niche comic. It had a niche audience. Like, it, it's... And then we gave it to six-year-olds. Yeah, it's, this is not the kind of... No, no, even going even for going a step back, this is really not the kind of show that ever should have existed. Mm -hmm. Like, the... It is the platypus of animation. Kind of. Like, I mean, television, because of the way television runs, there are so many checks and balances in place to make sure legitimately creative endeavors almost never get through. 
And I, I would argue, despite its failings, the show was legitimately creative endeavor. Like, it should not have happened. I mean, yeah, I loved the show as a kid, and I still really like it, despite the failings and all that jazz. Yeah. No, but again, I, I guess the point I'm making is, like, it, it frankly, it's nothing short of a miracle it exists. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. it really shouldn't. Yeah. And despite all the obstacles we had that one moment where we got something this different. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's a su- it should be considered an achievement, not necessarily a success, but I an see. achievement. Yeah. A, a very Canadian achievement is yes. what I want to say, because it's got that sort of, but also a Sim- going yeah. on. Simply by existing, though. Yep. And you can, you too can watch it. I think when we first talked about it, it wasn't actually available on YouTube at that time. It's the kind of thing that sort of like pops up and disappears. You can get it on DVD still if you want it, uh, like legally. Um, so you could watch it in low quality on YouTube or you could, you know, purchase it or whatever. Yeah. Legally, we recommend you purchase it. Mm-hmm. Of course you do. Plus you get like much better quality and it would be, it, I mean, since the animation is the best part of it. <laughs> I would strongly recommend that route. <laughs> if you want to hear more about weird Canadian things, mm-hmm. you can go back and listen to earlier One Last Sketch podcast mm-hmm. because it is not a topic we can resist. And if you find out, I just if if anyone out there finds more weird Canadian shit that we don't know about, let us know. We will review yeah. that. <laughs> you can find previous episodes on my website, onelastsketch.wordpress.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, you know, the usual places. You can We're find the me things. at the blog mentioned before. I'm also on Twitter, DeviantArt, Macedon.art, and Instagram as One Last Sketch. Where can we find you guys? Well, you can find my... Um... My blog at iatropexy.wordpress.com. Don't don't hurt yourself trying to spell that. Or through the website shrinkandexpand.com. Much easier. I am on Twitter through Shrink and Expand. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I will expand into other areas too. As for online presence, I don't really maintain one. One of these days I'll remedy that, but today is not that day. So don't Thank bother. Thank you for listening. <laughs> we'll talk about Full Metal Alchemist eventually. Bye. Maybe. (laughs) If it was a Canadian version, we'd be all over it. (laughs) Corey, say bye. Bye.